This podcast relates to a segment that Alex Thompson ran on UK Column News on the 17th of October 2022. Alex played a clip which showed a conversation between an unknown journalist and a member of the public that was interrupted by an inspector in the West Midlands Police. Now, the audio quality of the clip wasn't ideal, but it was good enough to be able to determine that the sticking point of the conversation was the journalist describing the T or transgender part of the LGBT movement as being insidious and he was making the distinction specifically between the LGB bit, the sexuality part of it, and transgenderism. This apparently was enough for a policeman to jump in and tell the journalist that he was on the cusp of committing a public order offence. I'll go into the specifics of what the inspector thought he was talking about, but the wider issue at stake here is public order and what it has become in the United Kingdom today. The Public Order Act as it stands, goes back to 1986. But there is a public order bill in progress at the moment, and it it illustrates the, the enormous importance and significance of knowing the law. As regular viewers of UK Column will be fully cognizant of, there is a, a raft of legislation coming out now that is of very great concern to anybody who has examined exactly the way in which their liberty is under threat. So over the course of the podcast, I'll go into the background of public order as a concept and as a point of legislation, uh, and specifically into the details of the public order bill now, but also to look at the balance between rights as they are, and public order, or indeed the restriction of rights, and the context within which all of this sits, and other pieces of legislation that are pertinent and relevant, as well as the conduct of the public with regards to this sort of legislation, and the police. So, first of all, just to get it out of the way, anybody that has watched or listened to the particular clip I'm referring to, I would imagine was fairly astounded by the approach of the police inspector. Context is everything, I, I, I admit that. We don't know exactly what had happened leading up to this incident. We've seen some isolated footage, but it does appear that the purpose of the inspector's intervention was to favour the side of the member of the public that was engaged in conversation with the journalist simply because he had used the word insidious and was in effect making a critique of the LGBT movement. The inspector further tried to lead his parent victim into telling him that she had been insulted by the language used. And this is rather obviously well beyond the remit of 
the police. It's certainly not for police to determine at that point whether or not somebody has been insulted or indeed a victim of a particular crime. The the What Alex specifically highlighted in his segment was the use of language and it was the words defamatory, derogatory and discriminatory that were chosen by the police inspector. It will be of no great surprise to learn that none of those three words appear at any point in the Public Order Act of 1986. So in effect he was making it up as he went along and he had absolutely no basis for the authority that he was attempting to exert at that point, which is shameful and it does reflect very poorly on the police. The problem is that in this situation it's more than likely that the person that he would have been speaking to wouldn't have been aware that this police inspector had got it wrong. And with a public order bill going through at the moment, it does demonstrate the importance of knowing the law, specific laws, and public order is is such a big one. It's become such a catch-all now. And I'll go on to talk about the public order bill as it is and particular parts of concern. In seeing the context for an examination of the public order bill as it is now, it's worth going back to 1986 and considering some of the points put forward in the House of Lords when the then public order bill was at committee stage. And without going on too long quoting the points brought out by the Lords, the, the start of the committee hearing was begun by Lord Mishcon talking about part two of the, the bill. And he says that the amendment proposes a clear statutory provision that subject to the provisions of part two, which we are now embarking upon, persons shall be lawfully entitled peacefully to demonstrate or peacefully to hold assemblies. Now the point here is that people at this stage by the Bill Now Act are in effect being boxed in. He goes on to say, but nowhere in the Bill, which is a public order bill and not a public disorder bill, is there a statutory right peacefully to demonstrate, peacefully to assemble? It is one of the rights which many of us, indeed all of us, I suppose, take for granted. It is a safety valve which, from our point of view as a nation, has proved to be very useful in times of crisis and on occasions when people have wanted perfectly peacefully to demonstrate by way of protest or by way of supporting a cause that they favoured. So he's putting forward an argument for preserving a right by putting it into statute. Lord Denning, who speaks immediately after him, makes the point contrary to Lord Mishcon and begins by saying, this right or duty is amply provided for in common law. The point that Lord Denning goes on to make is this. He 
quotes himself from a case, Hubbard versus Pitt, 1976. And he talks about the concerns he has over being prescriptive by using statute. And he says that these are rights which it is in the public interest that individuals should possess and, indeed, that they should exercise without impediment so long as no wrongful act is done. It is often the only means by which grievances can be brought to the knowledge of those in authority, at any rate with such impact as to gain a remedy. Our history is full of warnings against suppression of these rights. Such is the right of assembly, so also is the right to meet together, to go in procession, to demonstrate and to protest on matters of public concern. As long as it is done peaceably and in good order, without threats or incitement to violence or obstruction to traffic, it is not prohibited. I stress the need for peace and good order. Only too often violence may break out, and then it should be firmly handled and severely punished. But so long as good order is maintained, the right to demonstrate must be preserved. That's the end of his quote from 1976. He then said in 1986, Although I said that, I affirm that the right is in the common law of England. It is better to be stated in common law by the judges than to have it put in statute. I say that because the others disagreed with me on the facts, because there was a nuisance there. One does not have all the exceptions stated in the statute. If the right to demonstrate causes a nuisance, the common law will restrain it. But the real point, I stress this, is that these principles are enshrined in our common law. It is much better stated in the common law because the judges can moderate it, deal with it or give exceptions, as the case may be. The same is true of the right of assembly. All these have been protected by the judges for all these years by the common law. Let them still be protected by the common law. Do not let us start writing words in statutes. Needless to say, Lord Denning was ignored, which brings us up to the current moment with the Public Order Bill. Precisely as he forecast, one does not have all the exceptions stated in the statute. The provisions made in the current Public Order Bill are ludicrous to the point of being so utterly prescriptive that they will be almost immediately negotiated around. The specific offences referred to in the new Public Order Bill are offences of locking on or being equipped for locking on, offence of causing serious disruption by tunnelling, offence of causing serious disruption by being present in a tunnel, offence of being equipped for tunnelling, Obstruction of major transport works, interference with use or operation of key national infrastructure, offence of interference with access to or provision of abortion services. In being so very prescriptive and precise about these new offences, they go exactly to Lord Denning's point, which means that to get a conviction, prosecution, for any of these offences become increasingly difficult as people work to negotiate their way around them in order to ensure that they don't meet the specific points that would be required to make out the offence. 
to illustrate what I mean about negotiating one's way around offences, it's worth considering how DNA is used now. Initially, in the early days, sort of as a breakthrough technology and providing a, a means by which evidence could be linked to a particular suspect, it's become much less viable in that context now because most articles can be referred to as movable objects. So DNA being found on uh, an article associated with perhaps both the victim and the suspect and therefore providing a mechanism by which a suspect may be put in a particular place at a particular time. If that object happens to be movable, then it's entirely conceivable that DNA on that article might have come from the suspect at a totally different time and when one considers the threshold being beyond all reasonable doubt DNA in actual fact doesn't provide anything like the cast iron quality that it perhaps used to. The much more fundamental point to make which was made by Sir Charles Walker in the House of Commons the other day is that Almost all of these offences are covered by existing legislation, maybe not in such a prescriptive sense, but certainly by theme. And if not by statute, then by common law. Much more troubling than the provisions for new offences in part one is the flavour of part two, which deals with what are to be called serious disruption prevention orders. And these are essentially tools for denying people the ability to make a disruption as it's now considered by form of wrongful protest and these take shape in such a way that people may be prohibited from certain activities or visiting certain places or indeed compelled to present themselves in certain places at certain times and at the far end of the spectrum, this can involve electronic monitoring for a period of up to 12 months. And that can indeed be put upon somebody who is yet to be convicted of a protest-related offence. It might be for somebody who is likely to be involved in such a thing. And this is a this is an enormous step in the realm of public order, but again, in, in the realm of restricting liberty. Unfortunately, the events of the last two and a half years have shown just how willing the public are to be subjected to surveillance. The Track and Trace app is a prime example of exactly how people will subject themselves to this sort of treatment. So... In saying that it might be possible to have somebody electronically monitored before they've even committed an offence seems now far less abhorrent than it would have done three years ago. So this is the very thin end of an extremely dangerous wedge as we move into the very real arena of pre-crime or thought crime. And that's why this is so important to consider within the raft of other pernicious legislation which is going through at the moment, most notably in this context, the online safety bill, which contains the now infamous phrase, legal but harmful, dangerously subjective. 
much like many pieces of legislation which are now wielded so easily by anybody armed with a mobile telephone that they can record somebody causing them anxiety on. And so we return to the beginning of this piece, where in the clip that Alex had shown on the news, we watched as an inspector said to the unknown journalist, you have just insulted this person, before he turned to the member of the public and asked her, did you feel insulted by that comment? An article of mine recently published on the UK Column website deals with this in further detail if you'd like to have a look at it. It's entitled Woke Police, Bad Judgment or Bad Law? The reason for referring to the article now is it brings us to the issue of how police behave, how the public behaves and where the balance lies between police activity, rights of the individual and the very legislation itself. Since the Public Order Act did come into effect in 1986, there are two other main pieces of legislation which have such a bearing on all of this. The first one being the Human Rights Act of 1998 and the second being the Equality Act of 2010. The first takes the articles from the European Convention on Human Rights and enshrines them into British statute and the second gives what are called the protected characteristics which have made the waters so very muddy today. In the Blackstone's handbook for police trainees under the public order chapter it stated that the police have a negative duty to not restrict, hinder or prevent peaceful protest as well as a positive duty to protect citizens who want to exercise their right to demonstrate the right to peaceful assembly in the European Convention on Human Rights. This right is now enshrined in the Human Rights Act 1998 as the freedom of thought, conscience and religion, the freedom of expression and the freedom of assembly, which are respectively Articles 9, 10 and 11. So whilst it's almost a given that Parliament will produce bad legislation and avoid the words of Lord Denning, who suggested that common law was the most appropriate mechanism for being able to deal with this and indeed any other offence. What remains to be seen is how the public will manipulate the legislation to their own ends and how the police will respond to this manipulation. And if the last decade has been anything to go by, the future unfortunately looks particularly bleak.